so much misunderstanding about what the church is to be about, who, who it, it, what, what it is. Uh, and you, you never are more aware of it, I don't think, until you uh, try to start a new church. Okay? And I remember with, in my own family, with my kids, we were talking about, you know, okay, we believe God's calling our family to leave where we've been living for as long as they've existed or, uh, on this earth. And uh, uh, you know, we believe God was calling us to plant a church and God led us back to, to return back to Johnson City to do that. And so as we're sharing that with our kids, they're like, well, what are we, where are we going to get a church? Are we going to build a church? Whose church are we going to use? What's that? You know, and it was all their framework of thinking for my kids was it was all about a building because that's all they've ever known. We're going to church. We're going, and we've so kind of misused the word church to where um, it's kind of lost. It's it's largely lost its meaning. Uh, and there's great confusion, I think, often in our language. You know, you, you've if you've been in church at all growing up, you've heard. Um, in fact, I saw it yesterday. We were at a basketball thing at a church, um, upwards basketball, and there was a kid running and a parent called out to their kid. Do not run in the church. Don't run in the church. Fortunately, they didn't go beyond that. Sometimes parents will go even beyond. And if that's don't run in the church isn't enough, they'll drop the, the bomb on them. It'll be like, don't run in the house of God. Uh, you know, and that's when you know you are in to rubble if you don't stop running in the house of God. I mean, that's wow. That's pretty heavy right there. Not theologically right, but heavy. Um, you better listen then. And, you know, or, um, you know, hey, we, we need to go to church. What church do you go to? Are, are we going to church? I need to get back into church. I need to get back into what does that mean? You know, it's, it's we just don't really think the church is not a place. It's not a location. The church is, is, is about a group of people who have been called out from the world and from their sin to follow Jesus. They're the representation uh, of, of the body of Christ locally. And so we're, we're, as we talk about rethinking the church, there's a couple things that are connected with this. Now, there's some research done by um, a gentleman, David Wells, did a survey of seven different seminaries in about 1993. And what he observed of uh, seminary students, um, so learning to be pastors, getting ready to be pastors, missionaries, whatever, and uh, serving churches in different capacities. So this is your average, a little above um, your average uh, as far as biblical and spiritual IQ, you would assume they're excited about uh, spiritual things and they're whatever. So anyways, here's what he observed. These students are dissatisfied with the current status of the church. They believe it has lost its vision and they want more from it than it is giving them. Wells agreed with that thought, stating, indeed, it is not until we experience a holy dissatisfaction with things as they are that, that we can plant, uh, that we're able to plant the seeds of reform. In other words, until we come to a grips with, there's kind of a, a, a not a critical, unholy, but, but a holy a dissatisfaction with the way things are, there's really not kind of ripe ground for uh, us to plant the seeds for, um, for the church to be reformed, for us to go back to what is it really about. But here's the, here's the shocking thing about what his next statement. He says, of course, dissatisfaction alone is not enough. And I think that precisely is the problem. We have a lot of people dissatisfied with the church, whether they've ever been to church, they're hypercritical of as a bunch of hypocrites. People that are in church, they're hip, they're um, you know, hypocritical and um, often uh, highly critical of the church. I don't like the church because of this or because of that and because of this. And they have always reasons why they don't like the church, right? Uh, or it needs to be this, or it needs to be that, or we should be doing it this way, or we should do it that way, or church should have this and that. Everybody's critical, but very few people are really have a dissatisfaction that moves them to do something about it in a God honoring, healthy way. And I think the first place to start is to go back to Scripture and say, okay, really, what is it about? 
And so this week, we're launching from Matthew into this series with the very next passage that we're at. And it happens to be the first time that Jesus uses the, the word church. It's the first time. It's the establishment, the beginning of the church. And so it's really beautiful that, that this is where we're at. And so if you want to turn your Bibles to Luke, or sorry, Matthew chapter 16, 13. Yeah, that's right. Okay. All right. So here's what's going on um, as I'm flipping there and give you the context. Jesus has been in Magdala. A little map here behind you to show you what it looks like. That's not Magdala right there, but uh, here's what it is. Magdala is, okay, you got the Dead Sea, and then that kind of gray area in the middle is the Jordan River Valley. So the Jordan River flows from, the, from um, up at the Sea of Galilee south to the Dead Sea. Jerusalem is in Judea. It's over here by Bethlehem in Jerusalem. Um, you can see Jericho and Gilgal is all down the southern part. And as you go north, you come to the Sea of Galilee, and then Megan, zoom in on that. We have Magdala right here, and then you have uh, Caesarea Philippi. Okay, so Magdala, Tiberias, Caesarea Philippi. And down here on this, um, this section of the Sea of Galilee, a lot of Jesus' ministry, Nazareth, there you recognize that. A lot of it was happening in Capernaum, which is down in this area. And then Tiberias, he was there um, for part of the last couple chapters. And uh, he goes to Ty- Tyre and Sidon, which is not on the map, but it's up there above uh, Akko, um, up there just off the map, and then he comes back down here, feeds the 4,000 somewhere around this region, Magdala on the northern side, where it's a little less Jewish, a little more uh, Gentile, and then he goes on a little walking trip for the day uh, to Caesarea Philippi with the disciples, and that's the context of where we're at. So Caesarea Philippi is about a 30-mile walk from, uh, from Magdala. Now, as walking, it takes about 14 hours to get there, and so they do their 14-hour walk, and he goes all the way up there. And as he's traveling, obviously the crowds are fading away. It's just his disciples, probably um, the, the, the most committed of his followers, at the very least, probably his, his, the 12 disciples, apostles, um, and then maybe some others with them. But nonetheless, he gets up there, and with that small group, he's going to share some very specific, pivotal, critical things with them that are very relevant for us today. And he says to them, he asks them, who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say the Son of Man is? Ask them that question. And they say, well, some say he's this John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then he shifts and he says, well, who do you say that I am? Now, uh, in Caesarea Philippi, at that time, there was a temple built to the god Pan, P-A-N, God, little g-o-d, um, pan and then also uh, it was a place where they worshipped Caesar. So it was a place for the worship of their emperor, their dictator, and uh, and in addition to that, they worshipped the emperor and made offerings to him. They also made sacrifices to the god Pan. We'll talk more about him in a minute. And this is uh, another picture of that that left black and white picture matches up with um, the center spot you see in that uh, picture with the stairs there. Now there's more dirt around it. It's been filled in. And then you can see these little like window things. That's where they would place these statues of different gods. And then the bottom is a, is a, a recent photo from, a, I think, last year that is a picture where you see the cave in the background that matches up behind the major big building there, um, which is part of the, the temple to Pan, um, the god Pan. We'll come back to that in a minute. So jump to the next slide here. So get that mental image in your mind of, of where they're at. You hear the waters flowing. It's actually a really beautiful place. On the foot of the foot of Mount Hermon, which, which the the snow caps and the water that would run down that mountain, the springs 
feed this river, which feeds the Sea of Galilee, which in turn feeds this Jordan River and goes down to the sea, uh, the Dead Sea. And in the midst of this, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? And so they, they offer a couple suggestions. You get the kind of common theories of the day, Jesus' identity, common theories of the day. He says, uh, well, who do people say that I am? Some say you're John the Baptist. This is what Herod said. Herod had killed John the Baptist and he thought that Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected or his ghost, actually. And he was afraid of Jesus because he thought that he was the ghost of John the Baptist. And then others say, you may be Elijah. Many people expected the return of Elijah. In fact, Jesus said that uh, Jeremiah, I'm sorry, that John the Baptist was um, the return of Elijah. Elijah has returned in John the Baptist. That's that he represented the second coming, not second coming, that wouldn't be the right phrase, but the fulfillment of prophecy of Elijah. He came in the same spirit of. It's not that he channeled him. It's not that he was Elijah reborn. He was not. He was Elijah's Elijah. And, uh, but nonetheless, John the Baptist came representing the ministry and fulfillment of prophecies that one would come in the spirit of Elijah to make a way for the Messiah. And so uh, some were saying that he's Elijah and others were saying he's Jeremiah. Now, why Jeremiah? He was known as the weeping prophet. Jeremiah prophesied that destruction was coming to Jerusalem and to Judea because they were worshiping false gods and God had called them to repent again and again and again and they continued in their sin and rebellion against God. And so Jeremiah was not very popular with the spiritual leaders of that day. In fact, the leaders of the temple and the leaders of the priesthood, they all hated Jeremiah and they sought to kill Jeremiah. They dug a pit and threw him in it. They did different things to persecute him. And so he was constantly being persecuted by the religious leaders of that day. Who does that sound like? Sounds like Jesus, right? And so some said, well, he must be like Jeremiah because he's treated the same way that they treated Jeremiah. And so those are some of the common theories of the day. And then Jesus goes a step further. He says, okay, forget about what other people say. Who do you say I am? And they say, uh, this is the answer. Peter speaks up. Peter replies, you are the Christ. The Messiah. Christ means the Messiah, means the anointed one. It means the one who has prophesied in the Old Testament would one day come. That's who the Christ is. Peter says, you are the Christ. And then he goes a step further and he defines who that is. He says, the son of the living God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, two, two thoughts here. One, the son speaks of Jesus' relationship with the father, with God. He is the only begotten son. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. He's made of the same stuff as the father. Jesus isn't the first person who was born of the father. Okay, Jesus is the only person who has uh, is, is equal with the father. He is the representation of the father with flesh on. Okay, with human flesh, sinless nonetheless, but human flesh um, on. And so he says, you are the son of the living God. And the second part, the living God, in contrast to the common gods, like the one in the temple right behind Jesus as he's saying these things, you are the Christ, the son of the God who's alive, not the one who's a statue, who people are laying down sacrifices and throwing goats in a pit and doing different things and even sacrificing their babies at one point in history to that God. He's saying, you are the living God, the son of the living God. And Jesus answers him, blessed are you, Simon, Barjona. Barjona is a fancy phrase for son of Jonah. Okay. So basically saying, you blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Or in uh, the Gospel of John, he's called son of John, which is a similar name to Jonah, John, different uh, pronunciations of the of that name in that time. 
Blessed are you. It uses the same phrase that we have in the Beatitude. You are, man, you are so blessed, not, beyond, not based on circumstances, but God has found blessing upon you that you would see that, Simon. And then he goes on, and this is where it gets uh, exciting. Blessed are you, son of, uh, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You have not gotten this because you figured it out because you're so smart. So lest you think that you answered the question, you ever been that person or been in the room with that person that somebody asks a question, who do I say I am? They hit the buzzer first and answer the question and they feel like my whole identity is wrapped in the fact that I answered the question first and therefore I'm better than everybody else. You know, that's not, they, they, Jesus, just to keep Simon, um, you know, humble. Because, you know, you know Simon, he was a little crazy. He got a little big-headed sometimes. And so just to keep Simon humble, you know, uh, yeah, that's, you answered it right, Simon, but I know that you didn't figure that one out yourself. Okay, let's just not, let's, let's not fool anybody here. It's not because you're smarter than everybody, fishermen. All right, yeah. Um, he says to him, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So the common theory of Jesus' identity, well, he could be Elijah, he could be John the Baptist, he could be Jeremiah, we're not really sure who he is. And then there's God's revelation of who his son is, the Christ, the son of the living God, not revealed by flesh and blood, but revealed by God, the Father in heaven. What does that mean? You're the Christ. He goes on. He says, I tell you, you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. You are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And this is where things get crazy. You're Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, what is he saying? Well, here's here's the issue. He, He begins to reveal the church and its foundation, the church and its foundation. Now, we get a little hairy here because what happens is we're going from what the Bible says to we, we are 2,000 years removed from what was said, and we have 2,000 years of good and bad church history laid on top of this for how we view this. And there's a lot of views on what he is saying because Jesus uses a little play on words in the context of these phrases. He says, you are Peter, which is Petros, which means rock. And then he says, and upon this Petra, which is another form of the word rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against thee. The challenge here is about 300, actually it wasn't even 300 AD, but, um, but in the third century, um, the churches of that day, one church rose to prominence and that was the church in Rome and the bishop of the church in Rome um, eventually evolved into the first pope, okay, and then you have, um, up until the 1600s, you have so roughly 1,300 years of, of assumption as to just the way the church, the church is what it is, and it was seen as the holy Catholic church. Now, somewhere in the midst of that, um, the church split into, the church being the Roman Catholic church, split into Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox. So you have two major veins of Catholicism in Eastern and Roman um, Orthodoxy, okay? And two different veins there. And then in 1600 A.D., you have what is known as the Protestant Reformation. And so for the first time, you've got Martin Luther and some other guys going, you know, actually not the first time, but the first time on a, on a mass scale. So people going, I'm not really sure that the way we're doing things really matches up with Scripture. And so they start to ask some hard questions. And that's the first time people start really questioning, is this really biblical or is it not biblical the way we're doing things? And, and what really concerned Martin Luther is there was, some, there was a preacher coming to town 
um, sanctioned by the um, church in Rome that was raising money to build St. Peter's Cathedral. And he would tell people, look, if you put some money in the pot right now, you can spring your uh, ancestors who have died before you that are in purgatory right now, partially suffering. Um, you could spring them from purgatory and they will go to heaven. So if you give a little money, when the change rings, their soul from purgatory springs. That was literally different language, but that's how they little 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 ring there is a great little motto. When the church, you throw a little change in there, their soul springs. And so Martin Luther was hearing this. He's like, that's crazy. It's not in the Bible. That There's no way. What is that? And so he comes up with 95 things that he sees are unbiblical about what's being taught by this preacher and other preachers, that priests that were teaching these things that just weren't biblical. And that Reformation sparked a Reformation even in the Catholic Church in many ways where they revised some things. And after persecuting and throwing, condemning Luther to hell, which he didn't go to hell, I don't think, biblically, but condemning him because he, he bucked against, he went against the um, consensus of the church and the papal decrees, the authority of the Pope that has spoken and said things are a certain way. And he spoke against it because he felt that the Bible was higher than any man's view of anything else. And so he raised scripture. So scripture, um, sola scriptoris, scripture alone. Salvation is, uh, is based upon um, grace by faith alone. And, and our, the authority for us is Scripture alone. And so things began to change from that point. So we're looking back through a lot of stuff. And then today we have all these different denominations and they have all these different views of the Bible. And, and in, and of the, in and of that, um, it's, it's, it's not even that simple. A hundred years ago, we can talk about different convictions between different denominations. Well, the Methodists believe this and the Presbyterians believe this and the Baptists believe this and the uh, you know Anglicans believe this and the... Um, the Episcopal Church believes this, and the uh, Catholic Church believes this, and the Baptists believe this, and the Methodists believe And we have all these different views, right? Well, over the last hundred years, what's entered into that debate is there's the difference in how we do church government that divides churches, how they view baptism, and the Lord's Supper. That's the main divisions between churches. Um, there's some other things, but that was the main issues that really made people say, well, I'm in this group or I'm in that group. I believe we dunk babies. I believe we don't dunk babies. I believe that baptism, you dunk a person. I believe you just throw a little water on them. I believe they had different views. I believe we should have bishops over multiple churches. I believe we don't. I believe we should only have a pastor over one church. I, you know, they had all these different views. Those were the good old days. Because now what we have is over the last hundred years, the Bible now has been subjected to a little thing called higher criticism, which is and what has happened in the way that people view scripture now is, is professors were teaching in seminaries and have been for 100, over 100 years now uh, that um, when, they, when you read the Bible, what is the word of God is the part that speaks to you. The whole Bible is not the word of God because Paul had certain convictions and Peter had certain convictions and, and, um, and John had certain convictions and they all had their kind of views of who Jesus was. But I mean, how do we know that's really, it was traditions that they threw on there of who they think Jesus was. Did he really walk on water? Did he really feed the 5,000? Did he really feed, you know, and they started being critical of, and they started removing all of the miraculous things in the word of God and saying that it's impossible because unless you can test it in a laboratory, it didn't happen. And the only part of the Bible that's relevant is the part that speaks to you. So of course, any part that speaks of any sin in our lives, that's convenient to throw out. And so now you have churches debating homosexuality and um, whether to marry homosexuals, and you have them debating um, different views on different. That, that's just a that's an easy target. That there's 
a thousand other sins and other things you can put your finger on that um, the church has diluted its, its voice against but, and, and has really become unbiblical and too secular because now denominations that one time upheld the word of God but just structured things a little different, many of those don't even believe the word of God as a whole now. Does that make sense? So the water is so muddy starting a church when you're talking to people and they're like, well, what denomination are you? It's like, I want to laugh. It's like, do you have 45 minutes for me to get into this with you? Because all right, here's the deal. Um, you know, are you talking about 100 years ago? What denomination are you talking about today? Because now, right now it's a with like, you really, you, does your denomination believe the Bible or not? Because I'm with the group that believes the Bible. That's the group I'm in. Okay, so I'm not sure what you, let's start there. Do we believe the Bible or not? Other than that, let's then, you know, and then should we not have convictions about what we believe? And, and, and the challenge there is, again, we, we can be critical, as I said at the beginning, uh, of the church, but criticism in and of itself doesn't really help anything. What are we doing about the solution? And what are we doing to find the answers to those questions? What is really the church about? And so in this statement, you are the Petros, and upon this Petra, I will build my church. There's two interpretations. Uh, of what that means. And then there's the perversions of those two interpretations that have blown into a lot of different views, two major ones. So the two interpretations there. Uh, Peter's confession, the answer is found to answer the, the interpretation. Well, let me go back to two interpretations. One is that Jesus is building the church upon Peter. The other is Jesus is building the church upon Peter's confession. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. I lean towards the second, but the first one in and of itself is not necessarily wrong. There is some truth to that too. Peter was foundational in the early church. But not to say that he is the Christ on earth after Jesus went to the second uh, to the right hand of the Father and now there is a lineage passed down from him. Peter, by the way, had a wife. Uh, he had family. And um, so that's one thing. If he's the first pope, which is what the Catholic Church says, he, he, you know, he was married. So the rest of them should be able to be married too, I would think. And um, so we change that rule right there, you know, but there's a lot of things and I'm not, I, please understand, I'm not trying to disrespect anything, um, but at the end of the day, I'm trying to say, let's be biblical, let's be biblical and let's be willing to hold all of our, take all of our presuppositions and the way we were raised and whatever, and let's test it with the word of God, humbly, let's test it with the word of God, okay? We're not spiking Bibles because my view is better than your view in the way, that's not what I'm talking about, okay? This is about us humbly making sure that what we believe is biblical. And so, one is that Peter is the foundation of the church. The other is that the confession of Peter. Now, in that wordplay in the Greek, there's are two similar, sometimes similar words, sometimes distinct words. Petros generally means a stone that is easily uh, moved. It's, it's big, but it's, big, it's small enough that you're able to move it. In other words, you could build a wall with it. Petra is a big, huge stone that is like in the earth, and you maybe can move it to build a wall off of it. So it can be a cornerstone, it could be a foundational stone, but it's not a stone that you put on the top of a wall, okay? Because it's going to crush the rest of the stones. So Jesus is saying, uh, based on that interpretation, you are Petras. You're, you're a stone. But upon this Petra, I'm going to build my church. Hey, Peter, you're going to be one of those stones. You're going to be a vital, important, critical one. But nonetheless, the foundation of the church is exactly what you said that flesh and blood did not reveal to you, the Christ. I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the thought there. Now, how do we know what's right? Well, two, two ways. One is the answer is found in the context, and the second one is the answer is found in other clearer references. Based upon the context of what he's talking about, the confession 
Um, that's that we've already talked about that in the in the the language there. And then he goes on to say, "I will build my church." But what what is Petros and what does the rock mean in the rest of the scripture? Let's look at first. You can just write this down, okay? Write this reference down, and then I'll read it for you for sake of time, uh, and then we'll make some observations and move on. First Corinthians three ten through eleven says, "According to the grace of God given to me." Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon that foundation. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Clearly, the foundation of the church is Jesus by that statement, according to Paul. He said, but that's Paul. What about Peter? Because Peter probably, Paul didn't like Peter. He was jealous of Peter. That was the problem of all. He wanted to be the man, but Peter was the man. And so now that's the problem. Okay, well, let's look at what Peter says. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse six, verses 6 through 8, you yourselves, actually verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as, to a, as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but those who do not, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. In other words, again, to begin, you're a stone. God is using you to be built into a, um, a spiritual house, okay? And, and so all of us are part of that. If you're a follower of Jesus, you, you, you're a stone in that wall of God building to display to the world this awesome uh, church that, that he's manifested, or this, this temple that he's manifesting his presence through, um, these living stones. So again, the emphasis is not central Jerusalem. We have a big temple. Everybody can come check it out. If these are living stones that aren't in Jerusalem, they're in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Gray, and Boone's Creek, and, and Jonesboro, and Elizabethan, and they're in Tennessee, they're in Mississippi, they're in um, California even, they're in Florida, they're in, uh, they're in Canada, they're in Cancun, they're in um, Botswana, they're in Namibia. They're all over these living stones. And God is using these living stones all over the place to manifest its spirit as they build the body of Christ, which is not centrally located, but is scattered throughout the world. And the foundation of that is the chief cornerstone, and that is Jesus. That was Peter's view. Peter saw Jesus as the foundation. And then Ephesians chapter 2 Verse nine to end of verse nine, he says, "You." It goes on to say, "Members of the household of God." Verse twenty, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Question: What is the church? And what is its foundation? Is it Peter? Is it the confession? And I would say, yeah. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's Christ. He's the chief cornerstone based on these verses. But according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, uh, the foundation is also the apostles and the, um, the prophets. Now, clearly, the rest of the foundation is secondary to the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the most important part of any wall is the foundational cornerstone. If it's messed up, if it's not plumb, if it's not right, nothing else works. The foundational cornerstone is the christ but god has laid on top of that he's used the prophets and the apostles as the next layer that's the foundation and they have they have through them god has provided us with his word that we now have as a guide to show us what this is supposed to be like and what we're supposed to do to make sure we're right biblically right understand so the foundation 
is Christ, in, who is the chief cornerstone, and then he's built upon that the apostles and the prophets, and he's building us as living stones on top of that. And that's the building he's building. Now, what's the church? The word there is called ekklesia. Ek is out of. Klesia is called. So the called out ones literally means it was most often translated as the assembly or the gathering. Sometimes we'll say, hey, we're thankful that you're here at the Cross Life Gathering. Another way of saying it, we could say the Cross Life Church. I'm glad that you're here at the Cross Life um, Church Gathering or the gathering of the church would be better because it is the called out peoples who are assembling together as a representation of the body of Christ. Now, some other references, and we're not going to get into these deeply right now, but I just mentioned really quick. Some other ways that God, uh, that the New Testament describes the church is one is the body of Christ. Another one is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which I've just kind of alluded to. The bride of Christ. And another one is the people of God. The church, the word church in the Bible is used some hundred and something times, I believe, or 90 something times. Ninety five percent of the times it is in reference to um, a local gathering, a local body of believers. A few times, like in this instance and in Ephesians chapter 2, it is referencing uh, a, the, what you might call the universal church. The universal church. Now, a lot of people want to say, man, I'm part of the universal church, but I'm not really into organized religion. Well, that's unfortunate because the Bible is into organized religion. Because there's not really a universal church. I mean, how do you go join a universal church? How do you partake in the, um, the uh, things that Jesus commanded us to do um, like when you become a follower of Jesus to be baptized and then to partake in the Lord's Supper. How do you do that without um, having a local manifestation of the universal church? Okay, how do you do that? Now, here's, here's get a little technical here on you. All believers everywhere that have ever lived, that will ever will live until Jesus comes back, are um, all those who are legitimately followers of Jesus, every single one of them is part of the body of Christ, the universal church. Okay, this is where it gets tricky. But not all those that are part of the local expression of the body of Christ, local church, are believers. We would hope that they were, but they aren't all. Jesus even said that, you know what, uh, the kingdom of God is like um, a man who had a field and his enemy came in and sowed tares among the wheat. You know, sometimes light attracts bugs, okay? And sometimes there's people that are sitting in and are involved in and even members of the body of Christ manifested in a local church that aren't even legitimately believers. Hence the legitimate uh, description of so many churches as being hypocritical. I mean, just because somebody comes to church doesn't make them a Christian. Just because they're a member of a church doesn't make them a Christian. And so it's important that we make sure that we're reviewing and understanding and all surrendering ourselves to the gospel. So the church, the way you get into the kingdom of God is by repentance and faith and making surrendering your life to Christ. And in that, you go from death to life and you are immediately part of the universal body of Christ. And that is uh, legitimized or exposed or revealed or um, best uh, manifested as you involve yourself in a local body of believers. And then there's this kind of um, moment where somebody who's a follower of Christ and their life has been observed by the community of believers. They've watched their life, and they go, yeah, that person's legitimately a believer. And then they said, you know what? You're, you're a believer. You said that you follow Christ. We see the fruit of repentance in your life. You need to be baptized to be identified with the people of Christ, of, of God, and to be identified with, with Jesus. And so that person's baptized. And so that's this flash to say, oh, yeah, this person is a believer. We're, we see them. We see God's work in their life. 
And then there's this other ordinance that Jesus said, hey, as often as you guys get, um, as, you, as often as you do this, um, do this in remembrance of me, the Lord's Supper. And it's like a strobe light. Whenever you do the Lord's Supper, in theory, it should represent, it should only be done by those who legitimately are followers of Christ. And it kind of is a reminder of these are people who have laid their lives down to follow Christ. And so um, those two ordinances are used to show they don't make somebody Christian, but they should be revealing of who is a believer. Now, we'll talk more about that in the weeks to come and get into a little more of the technical part of that and why that is so relevant. But let me just um, end by, by finishing painting this picture for you. And this is where it gets really um, awesome. You're the Christ, and upon this foundation, I'm building my church. He talks about um, two, uh, you know, the identity of Jesus, then he gets into the church and the foundation. And then lastly, he ends by talking about two gates and two kingdoms. The, you're the church, and upon, um, you're the rock, and upon, I'm sorry, you're Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church, and here's what he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, have strength against to overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples, tell no one that I, um, he told them to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, here's the end of this. He says, you are the Peter, and upon this church I will build, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. I, I mentioned the temple of Pan. Pan was a goat god. He was a god. He was a he was a little g um, god of 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 Roman mythology in that time, Greek mythology. He was the goat god, and he's the one. Interestingly enough, who most often, when you've seen personifications of what Satan might look like, whether it's in a Far Side commercial or something else, he's the goat with the with the you know the horns and the the picket you know um, whatever not whatever the little was that thing, pitchfork. Thank you, not a picket fence, a pitchfork. And he's in hell and all that stuff. And so he was the god of nature. Pan was the god of nature. He was a Greek god of nature. He was replacing the Canaanite god of Baal. So in Canaan, before um, when they went to to take over Israel after Egypt and God set them free from Egypt and they go and Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and they conquer that region and whatever, Baal was the prominent God of that day. And so Gael, Baal kind of evolves into um, eventually the Romans, the Greeks, they call him Pan. And that's their view of, of who this God is. And they used to sacrifice babies to Baal. They sacrificed babies to Baal. Now we just do it to convenience in our country. But um, that's another sermon. And, and then his form was depicted as a goat man, the head of the goat with horns, body of a man, legs of a goat. He was Pan. He was the, one of the few gods who was able to cross into Hades, the place of the dead, and then return back to earth. And it was believed that the place he did it was the cave right behind Jesus as he's displaying these things and explaining these things. So he, he takes a 30-mile uh, walk to take the disciples away from the crowds, to tell them who he really is and make it clear, and then tell them, look, I'm going to build a church. And I want you to know that the, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church. He takes them to possibly, arguably, the most evil, wicked place you could possibly go, and he tells them this. In Oklahoma, there's been a, a group of people, of, of uh, Satan worshipers, that have petitioned the local government there that they would like to put a new statue because there's a kind of a Ten Commandments statue somewhere around there. They think it would be awesome to have a statue of Satan there in front of the Capitol building in Oklahoma. I mean, what, they, why should they not? And a statue, and it's a goat head. And you can go online, you can search uh, Satan statue in Oklahoma, you can see a picture of it, and it's exact description of this god of Pan. 
And it's beautiful because it has, I'm just facetious about it, I don't think it's beautiful, but this is the way they describe it. They, it's a statue and he's sitting there and, and he has, you know, the pitchfork and, or something, he's holding a staff or something, goat head, goat legs, human hands, body, children are standing there happy next to Satan. And, and it's not just a, a beautiful uh, statue, but it also is made so that it's like a bench where kids can crawl up in the lap of Satan and they can sit there and they can hang out and they can be pictured just to know Satan's not all bad. I mean, he's not all that, that. It's like Jesus going to this statue, which has not been built, praise God. But it's like him going to there and standing in front of it, even worse than that. And he tells his disciples, I'm going to build a church. And this wicked, evil place where they threw babies into a pit and they sacrificed animals and they did all kinds of wicked things. I want you to understand that the gates of hell cannot stand up against the church that I'm going to build. And you guys are going to be part of it. Do you know that the most significant thing you can be a part of in your lifetime is the body of Christ? And we are so flippant and critical and uh, complacent about why we gather and what it means to gather and about the impact. Listen to this. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, it says that the manifold wisdom of God, in other words, the multifaceted, brilliant, unbelievable, amazing, shockingly beyond comprehension, unbelievable uh, wisdom of God is being displayed through what? The church. Through the church. To who? To the principalities and the rulers of the air. God is using the church. Of all the things he could use, he has chosen to use a bunch of sinful misfits like me and like you, unworthy as we are, and rescuing us in redeeming us, having redeemed us, and having in, in the process of remaking us to be more like Jesus, he has chosen to manifest his wisdom through us so that the angels good and the angels fallen, good and evil, demons and the angels, can observe the glory of God and the wisdom of God as it is beautifully displayed through the redemption of a bunch of messed up people. And we're so complacent about it. We're so complacent about it. It is so relevant that you're part of a local body of believers. I would say that you cannot honor God in your relationship with Christ if you are by yourself on an island pursuing God. I'm sorry, you can't. You've got to be involved in a local body of believers. If not, you will be left up to just make it, you will become the center of the universe. God uses us in one another's lives to keep us, to, to, to keep holiness and righteousness in one another's lives as we are take the masks off and willing to be honest, to, to show love to one another, to show hands and feet and compassion of Jesus to one another, to care for one another. And as we just kind of show up and we're not really engaged in each other's lives, and if that's where you're just kind of exploring things, don't, don't feel like you can't do that. That's fine, man. We're just glad you're here. But as you're growing in the things of God and you want to live for God's glory, you're going to have to take the masks off. We're going to have to be real with one another for this process of redemption to be happening or, or transformation to be happening as we follow Jesus and we're changed by Jesus. The chief way we're changed is through His Holy Spirit, His Word, and then the sandpaper of one another's lives rubbing up against each other and having to deal with one another's flesh and issues and stuff and and how that makes us more like jesus jesus said you are the peter and upon this rock 
Christ, the Son of the living God. I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell are not going to prevail against thee. Let me read one more verse and then a thought, um, a quick story and I'm done. Okay, really quick. Isaiah 28, verse 14 through 18, it says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made a pact. Here's what was going on in that day. The people in uh, Israel were uh, sinful, and God had sent Isaiah to tell them, repent and turn back to God. And they said, you know what? Um, we're going to make a pact with Egypt, which is a representation of the world. We're going to the world for our security, and they're going to be our salvation, and they're going to help us. And so, you know what? You can say we made a pact with death and with Sheol, but it doesn't really matter. We're going to the world because that's where our hope is. And, and he says, he goes on to that, and he says to them, uh, for we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. We rest in falsehood and deception, and we're good with it. We, we don't care. Verse 16, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I have laid in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone, for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. Then hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the secret place. Your covenant with death will be canceled and your pact with Sheol will not stand. In other words, they're not going to rescue you. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, then you will become a trampling place. You have set before you two gates and two kingdoms, and you can pick which one you want. You have the gates of hell, and you can run there for refuge and strength, or you can run to the kingdom of God in which uh, Jesus ultimately is the key to that kingdom. There's a story, a guy by the name of uh, Gregory Lee Elder, um, he lived on the East Coast, lived close to the beach, and, and he loved as a kid to go, uh, he tells a story of going and um, building sandcastles, loved to build sandcastles, and he would he would go and build these awesome little kingdoms of sand and things, and he'd sit back and watch it, and he'd say, oh, how awesome is creation there. And there was one year, um, in a particular week, that there were some bullies on the beach, and they liked to pick on Gregory, and they would come by, and after he would build his awesome castle, and he'd sit back observing it, looking at it, and kind of just um, looking at all this awesome thing that he made, they, uh, they would come by, and they took great pleasure in smashing his great architectural sand castles. Finally, one day, he... He decided to build a kingdom, but he, he, he placed some cinder blocks down and some rocks around it. And so he built this greatest kingdom he'd ever built on top of cinder blocks and the rocks and all those things. And when the local trolls appeared to mess with his castle, they came and he disappeared to let them do what they're going to do. And they found out as they tried to destroy it barefooted that the kingdom was not so easily moved. And so it is with the church. You may see it as in decline. You may see it as feeble um, secularism and politics and persecution and false teaching and weak teaching and sin has all beset the kingdom of God and the church. And so it's just falling apart. It's not really. But you have to understand Jesus church is built upon the rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you have built upon your church, which does seem awful weak when we look at one another, upon you who is the foundation, and you are strong. And so, God, we just recognize again that the gospel truth of, of Jesus is that we aren't the foundation. 
and your plan is not contingent upon us. We can, would be wise to jump in on it and be a part of it as living stones building up to which you are the foundation and the cornerstone and to which all honor and glory goes to you, the architect of this incredible temple that you're building of living stones throughout generations all over the globe from every tribe and tongue and nation that will one day sit before you in the throne and worship Jesus alone as its foundation.